what sort of solidified it to me that I was making the right decision was when I made the decision, it felt like a huge weight off had been lifted off my shoulders. Like as soon as I said, okay, guys, I'm going to wind down. I called each of my investors and I said, we're going to wind down and I'm going to return funds. I felt, I felt so liberated, right? Like I felt like, oh my God, like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. It feels so good right now. And I think because of that, it made me realize, okay, this was the right decision, right? It's given me such a clearer headspace. And ultimately, this isn't the last startup that I'm going to make, right? This isn't the last startup that I'm going to create or go into. Like, this is the first of many, hopefully. And to me, the mindset was go out with dignity and honor, like, and, and, and sort of uphold my respect for all my investors, you know, take, uh, take a, like, take some time off, reflect on what, I failed at, realize the lessons that I've learned, and then go back to the drawing board and throw some more darts at the board. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, my conversation is with Jackie Koo. Jackie was an early team member of DoorDash's white label deliveries business in Australia. He recently co-founded MuchCart, which is now dissolved, a network of dark kitchens that helped restaurants expand into new areas without any rent or labor. Unfortunately, at the beginning of 2023, he had to close up shop, but with that, he was able to take with him amazing lessons learned and a once-in-a-lifetime experience. The global logistics food delivery space has gone through massive reform over the past year with failed businesses, capital inefficiencies, and overfunding, especially during a volatile market. Munchcart was no exception to this, but unlike others, it was able to gracefully close its doors with honor and a powerful lessons learned. In this episode, Expect to learn the biggest lessons from his startup failure, why the business model didn't work, why walking away was the best option, how to build strong investor relationships and why it matters, the rewards and pains of building a company, the importance of resilience, and much more. I think this episode was really hit home hard because I think there's a lot of founders out there who are struggling right now. And I think Jackie was brave enough to do this podcast uh, because he wanted to tell his story and he wanted to really showcase the ups and downs of building a company. But he was really brave enough to actually start the company. And I think more people like this need to tell their story. And I really hope that um, others will hopefully showcase what they're doing and the highs and lows of what they're going through right now in, in building a company. So if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms it helps bring content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Jackie Koo. So I wanted to sort of just open up because I think usually with a lot of the episodes, that I do, it's kind of interesting. There's always a lot of successes here and there and then ups and downs, but I think it'd be good to see both sides of the coin. And I think you really have an interesting story about what you've done with Munchcart, what you've done with DoorDash and everything. So maybe it would be sort of pertinent to sort of uh, create the lay of the land, see where we are about what's happened and, and sort of work backwards from there. Um, and I think it will hopefully paint a clear picture about what uh, is happening, what's 
you know, what you've done with uh, Munchcard, how you were able to build a business and, and sort of learn from those lessons. But maybe we can work our way backwards about, um, you know, what happened this year uh, and, and sort of go back from there. So do you want to just give a, a quick one on, on sort of the, the status uh, on, on what's been happening so far? Sure. So the TLDR on this is um, earlier this year, January, um, we winded down Munchcart, um, the startup that I co-founded last year. And Munchcart was essentially a, a startup that helped restaurants expand into new areas without them having to pay sort of any rent or hire any labor, which made it really, really easy for them to get extra additional net revenue um, in a already tight environment, um, particularly in hospitality. And so in essence, um, we started, uh, my cafe and I started Munchcart, uh, in May of last year. Um, it ran for around six months. Two of those months were sort of operational. So we were up and running operationally. It took around three to four months to get the whole setup up and running, um, partnering with our restaurants, you know, getting, getting everything set up. Um, and over the course of those two months, we said, here are like, here's what we think Munchcart's going to be. This is our vision for it. Here are the big assumptions that we're going to make, um, in terms of how this model is going to work and, you know, everything, you know, you sort of like, you have a plan until you get punched in the mouth type of thing. And like, we ran it for two months and a lot of our assumptions were proven wrong. And so in essence, it caused, uh, it, it sort of led to the, you know, eventual wind down of Munchcut because we just couldn't make the model work in a sense. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty much where everything is at, at the moment. Um, so, yeah. It's good to understand just what Munchcut actually is. And, and you sort of, sort of spoke about that a little bit. Because the logistics space and the delivery space obviously is, has been going gangbusters for years. You know, you had DoorDash, you had Uber, you had Deliveroo, and now there was a lot of and and obviously now with last mile and super fast delivery, that was also becoming a thing as well. I remember probably around 2021. There was all of these startups coming into this space from not just Australia, but the US and Europe. There was Gorillas, there was Milk Run. And I think everyone was trying to understand a little bit about what the unit economics were going to look like. I think it's sort of proven itself out um, slowly but surely that it is hard and the the model doesn't work for everyone, especially in certain geographies. Can you elaborate a little bit about the 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 inspiration for Munchcart? I know that you worked at DoorDash for a little bit, and I'm sure you learned a lot there. You learned a little bit about how they operated, but why did you find that this was a potential opportunity um, that no one had done before? And, and what was the thing that got you off your off your ta- off your seat, and in order to actually go out and do something about it? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. So when I was at DoorDash, I think the impetus of this started when I was at DoorDash, right? So um, I was there leading uh, our SMB restaurants team 
um, for DoorDash Drive, which was the white label delivery solution. And as part of that job, I spent a lot of time with restaurants um, every day, basically speaking to them um, and trying to get them to improve their revenues and ultimately their profit margins, right? So restaurants, I mean, if you look at the industry, on average, restaurants make a wrap, if they're lucky, 5 to 10% profit, right? Like, and this is this is a already really, really hard industry. And when you tack on things like logistics, when you tack on things like the crunch in um, supply, right? Like ingredients that we experienced over the last year, everything starts to eat away at these profit margins. And so really where Munchkart came from was this concept of like, how can we help restaurants do extra, like how can we help them get extra revenue, increase their profit margins, right? Without them having to do much extra work, right? And, and, and in turn also become a viable business. And so there are a lot of solutions, right? There were, there was, there's SaaS solutions that sort of help restaurants um, create online ordering platforms. Um, but we thought there is no, like we thought at the time, there was no better way of actually helping them than with the actual operations itself. Hospitality is a very, very operational industry. And we thought, well, if we could help them do something in that space, it's sort of a win-win because there's no extra sort of lift that they have to do, right? And so Munchkar was essentially born from that. And, and we said, well, let's have a look at all the startups that are out there in the US over in Southeast Asia. And there were some really interesting models that were happening over in the States. Um, and we thought, well, this is really, really interesting. What if something like that could work here, right? And we thought, okay, let's give it a crack, right? Let's, let's give it a go. Um, initially, we were actually just going to fund it ourselves um, just on the side. But we're very, very lucky to have like raised a small angel round, which gave us the capital to go and properly experiment with this. And so when we started, I think restaurants were really, really interested because they went, well, this is really cool because all you have to do, like all I have to do is just continue with my operations and then you can help me expand into a new delivery area, right? So the actual product that we sold was essentially this restaurants would finish like 80% of the prep that they would have to do. So let's take, for example, a chicken burger. So restaurants would go, okay, um, I've got a bun, a chicken patty, lettuce and tomato in my chicken burger. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to give Munchkart those deassembled ingredients. I'm going to give them a double fried chicken patty or double fried chicken, fried chicken piece. And all they have to do is do the final frying, right? So all we did at Munchkart was go, okay, take those ingredients. I'm going to fry this chicken, you know, sandwich, like fry this piece of fried chicken one last time and then assemble it. And so the, the logistics of it in, in terms of the kitchen prep made it so that we could get food out really quickly without having to do much work. And therein lies the big assumption that we made was around, okay, we don't need that much stuff on this because all they're doing is just assembling things and just doing the final frying or the final cooking. 
which means our cost should be theoretically really low, right? We only need one small kitchen. We don't need a lot of bench space because all we're doing is assembling and doing the final cooking. So we just need one room. We don't even need like proper cooking equipment, right? And for a restaurant, they're just doing the same things that they were already doing. And so there was a win-win there. And, and, and that in itself was the model. We thought we could take advantage of the labor costs. We could take advantage of the rent costs and therefore smooth and really quicken and streamline the logistics process of delivery and pickup, right? That was in essence what Munchcart was. So I feel like with, you know, there's a lot of items out there, delivery items that is, that require, don't require a lot of additional work. You mentioned like the hamburger, there is simply just, okay, you just need, here's a recipe, here are the ingredients, and then you can go ahead and simply just wrap everything up and then and send it out. Did that, you know, with that type of model, was it to be in a way that the, um, specific, which kitchens, I guess, would be responsible for this? Would this be outsourced to ghost kitchens? Would it be outsourced to sort of, um, you know, mom and pop kitchens at home? How was that model? Was it hub and spoke? Can you sort of elaborate on what that looked like? For sure. So the, Initial intention was to create a hub and spoke model. Um, however, when we started, what it looked like was this. We had our restaurants who would prep the, all the materials in their kitchens. Um, we would go and pick up the food actually. So we would like drive our vans, refrigerated vehicles and go and pick up the food, um, at the restaurants. We would then bring it back to our own kitchen in Maryland's. And from then we would set up like the assembly station, right? For like call it the fried chicken burger. And so all we needed was a big fridge with, with, with all the ingredients, um, literally a bench and the ingredients that we picked up from, from the restaurants. Um, you, I mean, you can already see in that it was a very, um, labor intensive model for us to start off with, right? Like having to go and pick up stuff, rent the vehicles. That was another cost bring it back like that took up i think three to four hours a day right if we had to do it and so um one of us would be at the kitchen the other one would go and pick up basically do a run of the entire entirety of sydney uh, and, and go and do this the the inspiration was to to eventually go into a hub and spoke model where we would have a centralized kitchen where all of the different restaurants would just you know send maybe one or two staff in they could prep sort of one day a week in our kitchen. And then from there, we would have these spoke, you know, distributed kitchens all across Sydney um, to, you know, be a part of the individual delivery areas, right? So that in essence was our way to help expand the restaurant's reach so that they were no longer just only in Maryland. They could be in, I don't know, Dural, or they could be in North Sydney. Um, and so, yeah, it was, a, it was a super interesting time. And I think, very, very, very um, hacky, if you want to call it that, that we had to like, you know, go in. We basically did everything ourselves <laughs> for, the, for, like, for the whole time. You did everything yourself. Obviously, you guys were starting out and that kind of made sense. But you, it is operationally heavy, right? And the fact that you had to go out to these restaurants and, and procure these ingredients, bring them back to the centralized kitchen that you rented and use that as a way 
for your hub to sort of send it out. Was that going to, was that always the end goal where you would create these sort of multi hub, um, multi hub, sorry, around Sydney and then be able to say, look, depending on where you live, we can go ahead and make whatever you need to make and then deliver it within a short period of time at low margins effectively. But where, where did that go wrong then? So if you, if that model was the one that was something that you were looking into, were there other models that you were contemplating? Uh, and how did you eventually come to a decision to say, okay, this was probably the most unit economically for us going forward? Um, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, reduce costs for us, but also make sure that we can optimize for the customer as well. Yes. Yeah. So there were sort of two models, if you want to call it that, um, that we were looking at, right? So one was this, where we would have a hub and spoke um, delivery and pickup only kitchens where like customers just wouldn't, um, wouldn't be able to dine in. And that was already a thing that was happening in Southeast Asia, it was already a thing that was happening in the US. And so we were like, okay, there's sort of enough proof here that it could work, right? Like we don't know whether it could work in Oz yet. And I think it's something we need to figure out. And then there was another model, which was in essence, like a um, delivery and pickup plus dine-in, right? Where you would physically open up a restaurant um, with, you know, this, this with the same sort of, um, you know, finishing mechanism where you wouldn't have to, um, you know, prep and cook food from start to finish, um, in a, in a spot and customers could actually go in and dine in and eat from this space. Um, and then there was like a third model, which was actually like opening up a proper restaurant and, you know, combining all the, all the restaurants into one, having this multi, call it multi restaurant diner hall. Um, experience and we we had a look at all those things and we said well based on what we know it's really expensive to open a restaurant it it, it costs you know three to five hundred thousand dollars to to do this so the initial capital that you have to outlay is a lot of money right like it's, it's a lot of money to do this and so we thought what's a quick way that we we like what's what's a way where we don't have to do that because this then becomes a now a you know five to ten x more expensive business to run because you're essentially running a restaurant and we didn't want to run restaurants like the two of us were like let's not let's not go down the restaurant path because it's super hard right which ironically we sort of like went down anyway because we did we sort of had to do everything um, and so that ruled out the whole restaurant and dine in option right with the storefront and everything. And so when it came down to unit economics, we were like, okay, what's a model where we can do something similar where we don't have to outlay a lot of capital and there are like, there are some sort of signals out there in the market that this is sort of working, right? And I think we chose, we chose the model that we went down with. And I think one of the mistakes that we made here, right, was we, we, we said, well, okay, there are some models that are working in Southeast Asia and they're working great, right? There's a model that's working in the US and it looks like it's working great because they've raised like $80 million, right? Like, hey, they've just like, they've just done a massive series C round and we were, we were going, oh my God, that's a signal, right? Like the signal is that 
They've raised a massive round. Investors love it. Um, it looks like they're, they're doing something right. So let's go and do that one. Okay. That's why we chose that model. And I, and like, you know, I can look back and say, man, we like, we shouldn't have done that. Right. Like we, sh- we firstly, like, don't look at funding as a signal for a successful business model. Right. Like just because they've raised like $20 million or $80 million doesn't mean it's going to work. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 interesting when you look back. That's the state of that company right now in the US that raised all that money. Yeah. Um so last year I was speaking with a with a well-known sort of industry insider over there and um he basically said there's he hasn't heard any news from them. Uh which which is uh you know, if you want to call it sort of no news is bad news, right? I think that's the that's the way I would look at it and that's the way he told me to look at it. So it's really interesting to see where all these models have gone. Um, and interestingly enough, the actual restaurant model um, is booming, right? Like the model where they opened up the actual storefront, had people dine in, um, that is actually going gangbusters over there. And I think it comes down to understanding who your customer is when it comes to food. Like people really want to experience food. Food is an intimate experience. Like you sort of want to see where your food's coming from. Like you want to be able to experience community when you eat food. Like you want to be able to experience it with your partner or your friends. And to have this sort of, you know, come down to an essence, it's like, well, I can see why that model was working now, right? But at the time, we were just so worried about operations and you can unit economics. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. We said about the the signal from fundraising and i think a lot of like startups and people just get enamored by the numbers and they feel like well if this company if company a raises that much then they must be doing something right and i think it was just a point in at least the economic cycle where people were just throwing money at things that were moving and it's like okay you have an idea here's some money and i feel like there was a lot of bad decisions that were made um, in not just the logistics side of things, but a lot of other areas where they simply thought that it could work um, from a, from a, from just a paper view, uh, point of view um, and not really think about how we would execute. But I think from your side though, you were able to sort of test it out. You know, you were able to sort of experiment and, and sort of see, um, you know, what was, uh, the pros and cons of, of doing that, you know, when you sort of go back to in hindsight, obviously with 2020 hindsight, it's, you know, it's, everything's different, but now that you have that insider knowledge on what has happened, what you did and all the steps that you did to take to, to sort of get to where you are here, you know, would you trade it? Uh, would you, or was it, was this a learning experience? Would you, what would you change? What would, you know, um, how would you redo uh, Munch Card again if you had the chance? Yeah. I mean, the experience as a whole, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I, I think um, I was extremely lucky to have had the chance to go and do this. Uh, I was extremely lucky to have had really, really great investors who basically put a bet on myself and, uh, co-founder and said like let's just do this right like overall it's an experiment we don't know where it's going to go but i mean i trust that you guys can make the right decisions um and and give it like give it at least your all 
you know, whilst you're doing this. And I mean, I can confidently say we, we gave it everything we, we, we had, um, you know, we really put, we put everything we had into this. Um, you know, if I had to redo Munchcart, I think, um, you know, there, there's, there's a few lessons to take from this, right? Like, firstly, to my point earlier, I think around this whole, you know, to, to your point earlier, when you, when you spoke about, you know, being enamored by fundraising, right? I think at the time, there was this huge craze of startups being funded in the logistics and fast, like quick commerce space, where if you had an idea for quick commerce, it was almost like free money in the sense that like VCs would just go, oh my God, this is crazy. Like, let's go do this, right? Because it's the next big, like could be the next hot thing. And hindsight now, looking back, like you look at all those guys that have raised huge money, like gorillas, right? like all the big guys over in the US who aren't doing that great now, right? And, 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 and I think if I were to go back, I would say to myself, okay, really let's look at what problem am I trying to solve? Let's not really like, let's not focus about on the business model, right? For, for once, like, let's look at what's a really big burning problem that customers have and will customers pay for this problem? And I think when I boil it down to that, there are, there are certain things that I would have done, right? And that, and that I, I, I feel like it could have gone different ways, but, um, you know, would I trade it for anything? Would I like repeat or I had to do anything? I probably wouldn't because I wouldn't be sitting here with like all these lessons in my head um, that I could apply in the next time. I think, you know, like there's a few reasons why it failed, right? Like the first reason is we, we, we timed this whole experiment, call it, at the tail end of COVID. And I think we, 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 we looked at this pandemic as the ignition to delivery and pick up and, you know, customers getting things on demand. And we thought, well, okay, this is really cool. Let's see if we can capitalize it. In hindsight, we sort of caught the tail, tail, like the tail end of it, and demand like really, really dropped when we started. Um, the other part was like, you know, to my point, we we looked at another model and we said, hey, like let's sort of like we we copied the model, right? Like, I mean, if you want to put it bluntly, we sort of copied the model and said, let's try and figure out how we can make this thing work in Oz. And I think when you have that mindset, it's almost like you're trying to fit, you know, a square peg in a round hole, right? It's never going to work unless you really make, unless you boil it down to first principles and you go, well, what is my customer in Australia like actually want? Like, do they want this and are they going to pay for it? We had paying customers, um, but the retention was almost as if like, you know, it, it wasn't great, right? And like people just came back because we offered a lot of discounts. <laughs> to a lot like you know to, to the point around you know quick comments like there's a lot of guys offering discounts and a lot of customers come back for it um the other part was and probably you know the, the the most interesting part was around unit economics and i think we we created a situation where we gave restaurants a really really great deal and it like it almost made zero sense for them not to take this deal the, the 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 flip side was we we made it a really horrible deal for us right for munchcart and when you have a like when you have such a great proposition for a restaurant where it's like oh my god i'd be dumb not to take whatever munchcart's offering me 
you need to make it work for you because what we did was we we sort of shot ourselves in the foot and we said, here's this great deal. There's no risk to you. You could do this and you're going to get extra revenue every week. But we we made it so that it was really difficult for us to get out of that hole because we thought as a startup, let's just take all the risk now. Let's give the restaurants what they need. And then over time, we can renegotiate our contracts. We can get them in a better spot. But with a lot of free trials, and, and I think it's shown in like even SaaS products, right? Like when you start to offer someone a free trial, it's really hard to get them off the free trial unless there's something really, really great about your product, right? Like is it a, this whole thing about like, is it a painkiller or a cure, right? And I think what we did was we created like a painkiller for them to start with and we couldn't get them off that. Um, and the other thing was, like finally, if you're trying to change consumer behavior, it's going to take a long, long time to do, right? Like it, it, consumers' behaviors and the way they act and the way they do things, their tendencies, they don't change over the course of weeks. It takes months. It takes years. And so to have a business that relies on changing some sort of behavior, some sort of core behavior, you need to be really patient. You need to you need to know what levers you can pull to get the consumers to change and stick to that change. And so, you know, to, 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 to the point that I raised about like okay, quick commerce, right? I think people were initially enamored by um, being able to get their groceries delivered in 15 minutes, right? But like, I don't, I don't see, I mean, many of my friends use services like that. They're now no longer needing to use services like that because they don't need it, right? Like it's a, it's a nice to have type of thing. And I think if I had to redo it, I would not go for nice to haves. I would go for must haves and like cures to actual problems. So, yeah. There's some, okay. So one thing that I want to touch on is the customer side of things. So for me and just learning about MunchCut and just this in, the entire space in and of itself is that this is a marketplace at the end of the day. So you are, you know, you're the middle guy, you're working with the restaurants, you're working with the customers as well. You mentioned that you provided all of these amazing deals and uh, propositions for the restaurants that they couldn't say no. That was great for them, but not so much good for you. But at least you had a bit of traction. You had at least product market fit for the for the for the business side of this, for the B2B side. For the customer side of things, what was the reception like? You know, obviously you we, we spoke about trying to fit, you know, square peg into a round hole. The markets are kind of different. You know, it depends on geography, um, the location of people, the dwellings. So when you obviously Maryland maybe describe sort of the demographics of where you operated first and how sort of that came into uh, why you decided to choose that area, but also what was the reception like from these types of customers? Was there f- good feedback? Was there bad feedback? What was the relationship between MunchCard and the customer themselves and, and whether there was actually interest in the product itself? So I'll explain three things. I'll explain um, why we chose Munch, like why we chose our launch market. The second thing I'll, I'll, I'll touch on is like what the reception was like. And then the third thing was how that played into the business, right? And, and, and why, why that was really important. So 
firstly, like, why did we launch in Marylands, right? So I, I had a proxy of good delivery areas um, in New South Wales just from my time at DoorDash. So I knew, I knew off the top of my head, okay, I know there are certain areas that you should go to. There are certain areas that are popping for, for, um, for delivery and pickup. Um, the other side of the coin was, could we actually get a spot in those areas, right? Like, could we physically find a kitchen there? And, um, and then what actually happened was we went on this search for, I think like two or three weeks. We, we, we had a initial top of funnel of around 50 leads that we could go to. And this was basically all around Sydney. Um, half of those were like fake, um, fake sort of ads. <laughs> like we were calling the real estate agents going, Hey, is this place available? We really want it. And they would go, Oh, so like it's, it's, it's been off the market for like two weeks. Right. And so well, as we were funneling down through that, we only ended up with, I think like three or four proper places that we could launch in. And for us, we wanted to launch as quickly as possible. We wanted to like, we wanted to get out in the market as quickly as possible because we needed to, 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 to go and like basically prove this model. And so what happened was it came down to, I think maybe three areas. Like one was in Campbelltown, another one was in Maryland. I think there was like another tiny one in like Bondi. Um, and when we looked at it, you know, as with any rental agreements, like you need to look at like if it's friendly or not, can you sort of get out of the clause? Like how, like how much is the rent overall? And so when we looked at Maryland, it was like the great, like it was a great spot because it was really close to Parramatta. Parramatta is a really big delivery area. They, they, they do a lot of volume. The, the rent was really cheap. We could go in there, you know, tomorrow, right? If we could, and we could start. And so the other two places just didn't have the type of flexibility and the costs that we needed. And so, we said, okay, let's go on Maryland's. Um, let's give it a, let's give it a go. We think we could get some of the market of the Parramatta delivery area. Um, and that's a hypothesis. So let's just take the risk on that for now. Right. That's why we chose Maryland's. When we went and launched in Maryland's, we had customers. Um, I think we had like seven orders in our first day. And then our second day, we had like 20 orders. And so. Over the course of sort of the the time that we were we were operating, it 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 interestingly enough, like um, baselined at around ten orders a day, no matter how much money we put into the, the machine, right? Like the, the marketing machine, if you want to call it that. Um, and customers would go, "Hey, this is really cool. I really like um, I really like what you guys are doing because I get to mix and match across like different restaurants. I get to order." curry one night with Vietnamese, with, with, you know, with Italian, if I wanted to, for example. So that was really cool. Um, we got a few shares on Instagram, but nothing insane, like nothing viral. Um, and what ended up happening was we needed, you know, from the business side, we needed them to not order on the marketplace. We needed them to switch over to our own channel. And this was a big, big, big assumption that we had to make because we said, for us, we need at least 30% of all orders coming through our direct channel. And the reason why we needed that was because direct channels have zero, like they've got $0 delivery fees, right? 
um, it's not, it's sort of a, sorry, not $0. It's a fixed delivery fee. So if you go, someone spends like $200, you only ever spend X dollars for delivery, which is, which is, uh, which we took on, um, versus a marketplace commission, which sort of scales with the cost of a basket, right? So 30% will always be 30% of a basket size. And so off the top of our, you know, on, on the top level, we only, I think, ever converted one customer over to our own channel. And which, 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 which brings me to like my last point about failure was we realized how hard it was to switch these guys over. It was extremely difficult to get customers who were ordering on Uber Eats or DoorDash or, um, or, or menu log, whatever it was to, to switch over and go, Hey, the next time I order, I'm going to order off MunchCut's direct website, like only website. And from there, what ended up happening was we couldn't switch anyone over. We had one person switch over, which was a close family friend, um, which meant automatically off every single one of our orders, 30% was taken, like just like that, 30%, 30%, 30%, which meant our margins were extremely, extremely small, right? And to be sustaining those margins for a long period of time is just not going to work to be sustaining it at the rate that we were doing it for, you know, at least the first two months was okay. Like we could do it. However, everything else was beginning to become a cost as well. Like we had to go and like, we had to go and pick up the food, right? That's another cost. We had to go and, you know, we, we, we like we, we had, we bore sort of the um, demand risk. So we took on wastage risk. Right, because we we bought food from whole, like we bought food at wholesale from these restaurants, and so all these things started to stack up, which meant the business just ultimately couldn't handle the the the, the margins and the economics that we were putting on it at the time. Um, yeah. So, just to elaborate on the the last part you talked about was the channels versus sort of direct, right? The direct channels versus the marketplaces. So you mentioned right. The DoorDashes, the Uber Eats, Deliveroo's, and Menulog. That, in and of itself, they the, those guys take a big chunk from uh, the delivery. You know, they take a large margin of that. And you found it super difficult to convert from that platform onto a direct channel. And you probably had your own app and your own portal to sort of order food, and the menu was probably the same thing. But why was it so? different why was it so difficult sorry to get them converted if it worked for them and they enjoyed it was it because they you know these other marketplaces offered more variety it was just probably a well-known a better known brand what was it something that you could speak to that was difficult for the conversion to to the direct channel side yeah like customers when they like i mean i, I could say this particularly for um for the marketplaces when, and, and, and market, this is why marketplaces are so sticky, right? When, when you have the, like when you have the Uber Eats marketplaces and the DoorDash marketplaces, the reason why customers are so sticky on that is because of one, the incentives that um, those marketplaces offer, right? And two, the ingrained psychology of a customer when they go and think of delivery, right? When, when you think of delivery, you almost everyone thinks of Uber Eats. Right? It's like, I'm going to order food. Oh, I'm going to Uber Eats it. 
right? It's like a verb. It's almost like it's a verb almost, right? Like no one says, I'm going to munch cart this. <laughs> it's like, you know, and how long has it taken Uber Eats to get to that point? It's taken years, right? It's taken a really long time. And I think when you have that sort of ingrained behavior that these marketplaces have put on because of the levers they can pull, like incentives, like subscriptions, right? Like Uber Eats has Uber One, I think, and DoorDash has DashPass. Um, when you stack all these things up, the proposition to stay on a platform is so much higher and so much stronger than to go and switch to um, a, a, a direct channel, right? For a sort of like a no-known, like a no-name brand like us, right? I think you could do it if you were Maccas. So Maccas has done this really well. They've got my Maccas and everyone goes on my Maccas to get, you know, every time I go to McDonald's, I would just open the my Maccas app and look for a reward. Um, KFC has done it really well. But they're all big name brands that have the brand equity to do this and the the incentives to go and do this. And so I think, you know, for it to work, I think one, you need to have really good incentives for a customer. And we tried every incentive we could, right? Like it was free delivery, like 50% off your first order, like all these things. And it just couldn't, like we couldn't sort of push them hard enough to come into us. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Like you have that so much brand reputation, and just to go against those incumbents and trying to figure out how do I how do I win this market because the the market share is challenging to 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 obtain and and to convert. And you mentioned like we spoke about this before, right? Like getting trying to convert someone to do something different is needs there needs to be some sort of incentive big enough for them to actually go and say, oh, well, this is so good that I'm going to go and try to use this and this will be my daily driver going forward. And that happens with not just food, but with just like apps in general, music, casting, all those things. And I think there's a lot of um, things to be said about stickiness and and what that means. Uh, Let's quickly switch gears a little bit. I think let's go back to sort of starting MunchCard from the beginning. And not necessarily talking about the business model per se, but just the company building side of things. And maybe you can share a little bit about your story, because I'm sure this was probably your first startup, something that you've done at scale, where you you had you put basically all of your energy into this. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying to do the same thing. They're probably first-time founders. They're a bit overwhelmed. They don't know exactly what to do. Can you sort of walk me through your journey? And your journey is going to be different from everyone else's, but hopefully it will be a bit of a blueprint uh, that people can use. And, but sort of understand about just from the walkthrough of like creating that deck or raising money. You know, I love to understand a little bit about that journey on to the point of where you were able to secure the funding and you were able to set up operations and, and build your team. What was that journey like for you? One, 2020, yeah, towards the end of 2021, I was already thinking about um, what the next thing I could do was. Uh, I think at the time I was at DoorDash, I was thinking, okay, I've done everything that I set out to do at DoorDash. I've, 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 I'm, I feel like I'm sort of at capacity now and I've gone and done the things, I, I sort of want to take this and do my own venture. And I had no idea what that venture was. Um, but 
I started reaching out to a lot of folks. I think I reached out to um, a few investors. I reached out to like accelerators and and, and all, all the good things out there. Um, and a very, I mean, ser- call it serendipitous, but an investor actually linked me up with um, my co-founder and said, hey, like he's thinking about very something very similar and you're in a similar space. Why don't you guys talk and, and, and you know, it could, I don't know, like let, why don't you guys just talk, right? I'll just leave it at that. And we went and talked and, and he was like, Hey, I'm thinking about this thing. I don't really know what it is. Like it could look like. Um, but I think it could be like, I think there could be something there. Right. And this was on very, very similar, um, wavelengths to what Munchkart was. And so I was at the time, um, I left DoorDash and I was in between joining another startup and I said, okay. I've got like a week and a bit left before I join this next startup. Um, let's go to a WeWork and like, let's, let's basically bash out all the things that we can think of for this thing that we're thinking of. And let's see if we could make something of it. And if we're both happy with the plan that we have and how we work together, then let's just go and do this thing. Right. So the co-founder matching experience was a very quick experience. Um, it was sort of based on gut and instinct, um, you know, which everyone has a very, very different, um, I guess approach to, uh, but, but mine was sort of based on gut and instinct. And I said, well, he's a good guy. Um, he, like, I think we can work well together. There's obviously similarities in drive here. And for a business like Munchkart, I don't really need like a technical person to go and execute this. Like it's really just purely operational at this point in time and all of the things he had. Right. So I said, okay, like let's do this. Um, but we need to figure out how we're going to get funding for it and how we, or, or how we are going to fund it ourselves. And, and, you know, at the time we weren't looking for any funding. Uh, you know, there was no deck, there was nothing. It was just an idea like a couple of notion pages <laughs> and that was it. And, um, very, very fortunately, you know, we had, um, like we had Daniel reach out to us and go, Hey, like, what are you working on? Um, like, do you want to do this type of thing? Uh, and, and from then it was met him for a coffee, literally on in the morning, give me, like, can you send me a deck and a, you know, can you send me your deck? by tonight. And I went back to Nick and I said, Hey, um, I just spoke with someone, they want a deck, they, and they want some materials. Let's do this. And the following morning it was, here's a deck. Um, here's the materials. And we got a term sheet that night or like, I think the following morning. And so from going from like, not wanting to like, not purposely going out and, um, seeking funding to funding sort of like coming to us, it was a very quick switch. And I think the switch that we needed to make was, are you in or are you out type of thing, right? Because the moment you take on funding, you can't go half, like you can't go half in, half out. Like you've got to go full time on it. You can't go part time. Like That means I would have had to quit the startup that I was about to join. Um, and so what happened was we said yes. And I think at that time I was sort of like, a few weeks into working at the startup that I was about to join, handed in my resignation. And then from then 
we just went and built Munchkart. So that was a, that was the funding phase to it, right? And and my journey is very very different to a lot of folks in that um, I was very lucky to have had the opportunity to have someone like reach out to me and say, "Hey, what are you working on?" And then to have that you know very lucky meeting, if you want to call it that. Um, I know I, my experience is not representative of everyone, um, and so I didn't have to go through you know, the, 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 the struggle of like going out and raising in the sense, um, we, I did go through, we did go through a funding round in terms of trying to extend and, and, and increase the amount that we raised. So we did go through that in terms of reaching out to investors, um, basically going through a proper process. Um, but we were very, uh, but we didn't actually end up getting any investment from that. So we, we, we had a couple of angels add on to the initial amount and then we caught it like that was around and we just said, okay, let's work with this amount that we have. Let's try and do something of it. Um, and then off we went. Right. And so there was no, um, I would say proper, you know, process to get the initial amount in. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was the start of it. Right. And then we went on and actually did the thing. So to actually start the company, we were like, okay, there's, a few things you have to do you've got to go and contact your, like a lawyer you've got to get your accountant like all, all of these back-end things that we hadn't even thought about you've got to get incorporated you know there's a full stack of like admin that you have to do but it's not that difficult right like that's that's the boring part so you can do that in like a week um the other part is now okay let's actually start on the business and so for us what we needed was we knew we needed restaurants we need rest like we needed good local hero restaurants that people had some recognition of. And fortunately, uh, my co-founder had already developed a lot of these relationships in the months prior to meeting me. And so it was a sort of easy transition to go and say, hey, this is what we're working on. Would you be interested in being a part of our journey? And a lot of them said yes, right? Fortunately, I think everyone said yes because we had already done the groundwork for it prior to this like prior to receiving the funding and so getting all of that up and running and then finding the rent like finding the the, the lease right to the actual kitchen and then sorting out all the operations um behind it like how are we going to get to this like how do we get the food right okay so you need to go and rent a vehicle uh oh you need council approval because you were operating like a like a like a kitchen oh we didn't think about that like let's email the council up and get council approval for this, right? Like all of these things you just don't think about, they just come to you all at once. We had a plan, but everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? Like all these things just pop up out of nowhere and you've got to sort of think on the fly. And so we had a lot of those until we got to a point where we were very comfortable and we had everything, like all our ducks in order. We had our restaurant partners agreements done. We had the food, we had the concepts, we had the menu, we integrated with all of the delivery providers. We had our logistics set up and we were like, okay, let's launch, right? That process probably took two and a half months, three months until we were comfortable to say, okay, let's launch, right? And then we launched, we had uh, like seven orders on the first day, 20 the next, and then it sort of fluctuated between 15 and 10 for the rest of the time. Um, and then ultimately, you know, what we said before, just things that just did, things just didn't work. Uh, and then ultimately had to shut down. So, you know, that was the, 
process at a really high level. That was uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's uh, every startup will have to go through that, and it's just interesting to see people's actions and 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 the founders the, the sort of the steps that founders take to sort of launch everything because they don't know what's going to come at them. You know, you mentioned the approval, you mentioned setting up the admin, you know, and, and I think now with that hindsight and all that information you have next, whatever venture you do next, if there is anything you would love, you know, you'd have that sort of mindset there and you'd, you'd know exactly what to do and sort of prepare, better prepare yourself. And that again, goes back to that lessons learned and everything you've been able to sort of learn and you wouldn't trade it in for the world as well. Would you continue? So in terms of, and now fast forwarding back to sort of what happened this year, why did you decide to sort of stop everything and, and cease operations? Obviously there are a lot of people out there. It's like, well, you should have just kept going and you should have just kept, you know, raising more money and do a bridge round and just keep going on. But at the same time, you know, there are many, many reasons why there could be personal, you know, professional reasons to do so. What were some of yours to sort of figure out, you know, this is probably a great lesson and, and a great experience for me, but something that I couldn't uh, continue and see myself uh, into sort of the foreseeable future. What was the what was the impetus for you to sort of stop everything? At the end of... Um, so when did we, so we stopped probably October, I think we stopped operating Munchkart properly in October. That's when we said, we're going to cut the lease. We're going to stop operating. We're going to shut down, um, because the economics just weren't working. And I didn't call it quits at that point. Neither did my co-founder, right? We said, there is something interesting here that we could make. Let's try and pivot, right? Like, and I think before you call it quits, you should really think about, well, have I done everything I can, right? Have I, have I taken, like, is there something interesting angle that I've, that, that or interesting insight that I've taken from Munchkart uh, and the way we operated into another startup and, and sort of pivot in our, in our direction. And so we did pivot, right? So we went through a few pivots. I think we, we experimented with, um, with like corporate catering, uh, which is along similar lines to what we did at Munchkart. Um, I think we we tested out um, we tested out like a loyalty and memberships platform um, for like a, a true SaaS platform, right? Like it never got off the ground, but it was a like MVP concept, right? Um, and I think that was like in Web three, right? At the time, like Web three was hot, and we're like, oh, let's do Web three, like you know surely we can get funding web three <laughs> like it's got web three in it right um and i think with those pivots like we were never sold on the pivots right we would we never had conviction for it and i think if we had to do it like both my co-founder and i had to have conviction for it like we had to be solid about what we were doing like do you have the heart like is your heart in it with this idea type of thing and do you see yourself doing this for the next 10 years, right? Sticking with this same like problem idea that you have. And at the time we looked at everything and we said, man, like, this is not like, this is not, this is not working, right? This, 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 these, these, these pivots that we're making, it's not, it's not actually, um, like I don't have conviction for the, the, the ideas that we're making. Um, compound that with the fact that, you know, 
personally, right, we weren't paying ourselves a lot of money. In fact, I don't think we were paying ourselves at all for the first like five to six months. And so what happens is like uh, over time, you your personal runway sort of goes, like it sort of drops, which means personally you're thinking, oh my God, like, okay, my bank account is like slowly running out, right? The startup is also not in a really good spot. But personally, you like you need to take care of yourself first, right? And I think at the time, um, you know, like my co-founder was was um, like at that time, I think he was like a year out um, from from quitting his job or year. Yeah, it's me. It was like a year from from quitting his job. So, and he was sort of like the sole income um, earner for his family, right? And so, I think what ended up happening was, you know he left in December and said, look, this is like, I've got to take care of my own personal like situations, which is, you know, I was a hundred percent for, because you need to do that first. Like you need to take care of yourself first before you can give everything to a startup. Um, and at the time, you know, the, 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 the financial outcome of the startup in terms of like what we get paying ourselves was, wasn't, it just wasn't making any sense, um, for, for, for either of us. And, and so everyone has their own you know, different situations. And so um, he left, January comes, and it was, it, it was only like a few weeks after he left, actually, when, when we were like, okay, let's figure out if this is going to work. And so there were three options that were laid, right? And this is a very, I think this is a testament to um, what a great investor um, or great set of investors that, that I had on like Munchcart. And it was a very, very honest and transparent conversation that I had with Daniel. Uh, he is an ex-founder himself. And he said, Jackie, like there are a few options here available to you. I'm not going to push you down either way. But as a founder myself, I wish I had these things given to me when I was doing my own startup. And so here I am. I'm going to lay out like what you can like. There's a, there are, these are the options that you may not be thinking of. And so the first was like, you can you can continue doing this right for the next um you know however long you're doing it at the rate that you're going but you potentially can run the company into the ground right with the sort of runway that you're using up like the amount that you're paying yourselves obviously it's extended now um but there is a potential that you could have nothing at the end of this and you leave your investors with nothing now obviously like investors come in with the risk that they know they're going to lose everything, but it's something to keep in mind um, for your angels, right? The second thing is like, you can continue doing this, um, but you lower your cash burn and you, you take a really long-term view for three, four years even, whilst the market's recovering. And you use that time to find product market fit in whatever idea that you're looking at, right? But that means you're, you're like, that means whatever you're getting paid here is, is extremely low. And you've got to, you know, you got to work on this, like, you know, for the next three or four years. Or the third is you wind down and you return funds back. Now, the first option of going at the rate that we were going it didn't make sense to me because I didn't want to leave our investors with nothing, right? Like, I, I mean, Obviously, there's a risk that they come in, they take that they, they could leave with nothing, but it just didn't sit right with me that I could like I could do that to someone, right? Like these are people that I've grown relationships with, 
like they're great people and I want to and I want to maintain that and uphold that. So for that reason, I didn't want to continue at the rate. The second, which then goes to like, okay, well, if you can't continue at the rate, then just lower your cash burn and like do a long-term view, right? That didn't make sense because personally, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't live on a ramen diet for the next three years. I, I, I'm not a uni student anymore. Like there are bills I have to pay. And for me to do that, for me to take path two meant I would have had to take other jobs right? Consult, call it consulting jobs or part-time gigs, which meant I wouldn't be giving the startup a hundred percent. Like I would be giving it 50% in my opinion. And so that, that wouldn't give it justice, right? It wouldn't give it the energy that it deserved. And so that meant option one, option two were out. Option three made the most sense, right? Like you should, like if you don't have the heart or the conviction for the idea that you have now, for the next X years or the personal runway or the personal situation to go and, you know, withstand that amount of time, it's okay to call it like, it's okay to just wind down and return funds. And I think what made it, what sort of solidified it to me that I was making the right decision was when I made the decision, it felt like a huge weight off had been lifted off my shoulders. Like as soon as I said, okay, guys, I'm going to wind down. I called each of my investors and said, we're going to wind down and I'm going to return funds. I felt, I felt so liberated, right? Like I felt like, oh my God, like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. It feels so good right now. And I think because of that, it made me realize, okay, this was the right decision, right? It's given me such a clearer headspace. And ultimately, this isn't the last startup that I'm going to make, right? This isn't the last startup that I'm going to create or go into like, this is the first of many, hopefully. And to me, the mindset was go out with dignity and honor, like, and, and, and sort of uphold my respect for all my investors, you know, take, uh, take it, like take some time off, reflect on what I failed at, realize the lessons that I've learned and then go back to the drawing board and throw some more darts at the board. Right. And then do it again. And I think to me, that was a very cathartic experience. You know, when I winded down, when I wrote my postmortem, it gave me a lot of clarity in terms of what we did wrong. Here are the things that we, we should be doing next time. And then, you know, the strength to go and go, okay, like let's, let's, yeah, lesson learned. All right, let's, on to the next one, right? There's a, there's a lot to be said there. And I think, you know, for, all the stuff that you did and those decisions that were given to you, you know, there's, it was tough at the end of the day. And it sounds like you had to probably think about the next steps. And personally for me, I think going through a lot of startups, both, you know, in different types of sectors, but also just startups in general, you get a feel for the pressure that a founder is under to, deliver because especially if there is external funding that comes in there's a, this notion is that like look it's great that we have this money but now you actually have to kick some goals and really prove to your investors and all the stakeholders involved that there's something there so massive kudos to you to sort of hang up the boots so to speak for this startup but knowing that this was not the beginning. This is not the end for what's going to happen next. And I think 
there's a lot to be said about perseverance and and sort of continuing to go at it. And I'm sure a lot of people will have different experiences. A lot of them will say, look, I just want to continue doing this because I believe in it. There are others who are going to be in your situation. Look, I just don't have the balance right now that I need. And I want to make sure that I can take care of myself from a personal standpoint, because it sounds like in order to do something this hard, it requires a lot of tenacity and 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 uh, persistence, and you balance that with like all the personal things that you have to deal with, the financial side of things, and and trying to sort of lead a healthy and and life. I think that's something to be said as well. What was your mental state like during this time? I I think I don't know. You know, it's usually a topic I like to speak about because being a founder is hard. You know, doing things like this is always hard. Was there a moment where you felt like, oh, I just didn't feel like doing this anymore? Waking up in the morning just was dreary. Um, you know, was there a moment? Or I'm sure there was a lot of ups and downs. What, what was the mental state that you had sort of throughout this journey? Yeah, it, it was definitely a roller coaster. Um, and, you know, it, it, at times it was fantastic. You know, we were smashing goals. Every time we had a small win, it was like, you got to celebrate the small wins. Um, and then there were other times where it was just like, you know, this is like a huge loss type of thing, right? Like, man, we didn't land that, per- like we didn't land that restaurant. Oh, you know, we just got a negative review on Uber Eats, right? Like we, 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 um, yeah, like all, all these things, I think, you know, my mental state was like, it was up and down to say the least, right? Like, um, what, like what really helped me during the time was just to try and stay level-headed throughout it all because what i realized i think like halfway through running munchkart was okay you're going to go through a lot more of these like this isn't this is just the start of it like you're going to go through a lot more of these patches where it's it's up it's down it's up it's down but they come in waves so just ride the wave whenever it comes right like if you're going through a really high patch just know that the high patch is going to, it's going to be there, but it's going to go away. So be level-headed throughout it all and just realize that, you know, it, it comes and goes. It's all temporary. Now, in saying that, when we winded down the operations, I was in like a really bad mental state because I was like, man, what, like, how like, we put all this work into this and it just flopped. Right. Like my, like, I think I remember, um, my co-founder and I being in a very similar headspace and going, man, this is like, this is bad. Like this is, this is, this is not good. And we need to figure out, we need to figure out what we have to do next. And so I think as a co-founder relationship, there, there, there was, there were times where I was down, I needed to be pulled up. He was down, he needed to be pulled up. And I think you got to have that in a co-founder. And this is why I think being a solo founder is really difficult because you don't have that other person to, to level you, right? Like you don't have that other person to be the equalizer. Um, and so I was very fortunate to have had my co-founder because we could go through those patches together. Right. And whenever we went through those patches, I always knew that he could, he could be there to bring me up or level me. Right. And so very, very, very important. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, 
towards towards the end of Munchkart um, and and just before the pivots, you know, our headspace wasn't great. You know, during the pivots, our headspace wasn't great because we just didn't have the conviction for it. When you don't have conviction, it's almost like you're trying to be this artificial layer of like you're trying to artificially be better, right? Or like you're trying to artificially put your headspace in a better state, but because you don't have the conviction, there's always this thing that's eating at your mind. It's like I don't think I'm working on the right thing. And as a founder, you, you, you when you have the clarity that you've got, you're working on the right thing and doing the right things and having a clear goal, it, it becomes so much clearer to you that, you know, the, 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 the map is, the map is fully loaded in a sense. Right. Um, we, we, we didn't have that during the pivot. And so, um, you know, after the pivot, as we're winding down, after we're winding down, my headspace was fantastic. You know, cause I said like the moment we winded down, it was almost like this fog had just cleared. Right. And, and, and this weight had just been lifted off my shoulders. And so, the 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 story is like you're going to go through these things you're going to go through these ups and downs it's important to have someone there with you right whether that be your co-founder whether that be your partner or a close friend or an advisor or an investor whoever it is it's very very important because i can't imagine i can't imagine not having a support network as a founder like it's 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 extremely difficult it's extremely lonely the the the, the journey is not like all roses it's it's actually it's more downs than ups as being as being a founder so like mental health is is really 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 important and i think you need to have a proper support network like and which which means before you even start the startup tell everyone that you're going to start it right because then that way everyone knows that you're going through this right like it's not a surprise that um you know it's not a surprise down the line to, to know that Jackie started a startup, right? Like, oh, I didn't know he was starting a startup because, you know, X, Y, Z. But I think it's important to tell people that you're going through things, tell people that you're start, like you've started this thing, you know, preempt them that, hey, I'm going to have a lonely, like, this is going to be a really hard time for me, would appreciate your support. Um, and so doing all those things helped me, to be honest, but it was really hard, really, really difficult. No, no. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I think, you know, and, and you sh- you posted this on on LinkedIn as well, and I think that was a a good move on your side as well. It's just obviously that's how I knew about you, and you know, here we are speaking about it. But at the same time, I think there is a lot of people who are going through this themselves, both as co-founders, but also as solo founders. And I think if you're trying to build something, especially in this market, um, there's going to be tough times ahead and it's sort of leveling with yourself as you said and trying to go and sort of roll with the punches as they come and figuring out that entrepreneurship building a company that you know you see the news and it's always like you know always roses and you have these rose tinted glasses but you know getting there is is definitely a roller coaster ride let's quickly just quickly jump into sort of the reason for going into this, like entrepreneurship in general, has there always been a chip on your shoulder? Why did you decide to do it? You could have just easily just had a cush cruise through, you know, your career, jump from startup to startup, or go have a nice corporate job. Why put yourself through all of this? Yeah. So growing up, I think I was always surrounded by small business. 
um, and entrepreneurship. So my parents or my mum specifically owned a small business. Um, you know, at the time, like during, during primary school, like we would have people come over to our houses. Like we would come people, have people come over to our house to like buy clothes, right? Because my mum sold clothes. Um, like I'd always hear about how my mum started the small business. It was, you know, she, she was working as a factory worker at the time. And during her lunch break, she would bring these like garbage bags in the garbage bags would be full of clothes. <laughs> she would go into like the locker rooms and sell clothes. And that's how she started like with her small business. So I think growing up, there was always this um, environment of entrepreneurship, um, being surrounded by business. And so it was always, um, I guess it was sort of instilled in me that, oh, you can go and do something and not have to work for someone. You could work for yourself and make something for yourself and you know, live a great life. And that's all I wanted to do, right? I wanted to, to live a great life. I didn't want to be controlled or, you know, at the time sort of like, you know, I wanted to control my own destiny, right? As they say. So primary school, primary school, high school, I did a few things. It was like, you know, selling Tarzos in, in, in the playground. And then it was like tutoring kids, like after school hours. So all of those like small things, I think made me realize like, okay, if you could go and do something bigger, um, but it wouldn't be small business, right? Like I, I think, um, and then uni hit, um, and, 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 and sort of like post uni and I went down the cushy path. I went down, and I, I was a manager. I did management consulting. I lived in like, I, I went overseas and did management consulting. I sort of went to a, you know, call it a scale up corporate type in DoorDash. They were listed. Um, so I, I, I experienced what that could look like. And to me, I, it just didn't fit what my life, um, goals were at the time. And so it, it made me realize how much I wanted to do business. Like it made me realize how much I wanted to go and like do something and under, and I understood the risk, right? Like I, it's like, and, and having an environment when you're, when like having a, uh, an environment in your childhood and like in your adolescence and your teens um, with business surrounded by you makes it easier to take risk because you've seen it before. And so I saw it all before. I saw what it took to do to, to those things, what risks uh, were involved, which made it very easy for me to go, okay, I'm going to quit my job and like pursue this startup. Right. Um, that's why I went into it uh, or it's not why I went into it. It's, it's the, I guess um, it's what made it easier for me to make the, the, the leap um, from call it corporate into entrepreneurship or startup world. Yeah. I think there's something to be said there and, and everyone has this notion. And for me, I think, you know, it's, it's one thing to, go in, into corporate after college or university and, and learn as much as you can. I think it's great to be doing that. But at the same time, how do you get out of that? Maybe you've done it for a few years and you feel like, okay, I've got enough experience. And then how do I take that to build something myself and build my own house? And I think there's, I wish a lot more people would do that. I think there's obviously a lot of risk. Everyone is different and I'm not asking everyone to do that, but it, it would be really good to see the life experiences that you can gain from that. And, you know, there's this notion of the one-way door and the two-way door, um, you know, marked by 
Jeff Bezos. And so he says that, look, if it's too late or you can always go back, you know, you can try it and then you're going to go back to corporate, do whatever you need to do. But it's one way door, you know, obviously there's no way, there's no return trip back, but most things in life are two way doors anyway. So you should, you should give it your best shot, even if you wanted to do so. I, I guess that sort of segues into sort of the last thing is sort of advice for people. You know, what do you recommend? Obviously, I want to sort of just state that this everyone is going to be different anyway. But if there's anything that you can say to people who are trying to do something for themselves, but also use the lessons that you learned from building out Munchkan and what to do and what not to do and trying to prepare them for success. How would you sort of, uh, sort of, help them get to that point Mm, i would think about it um probably in like two dimensions so the the first is your personal dimension right so personally um do you like you know from a more practical point like do you have the safety net slash like personal runway to do this right if you're going full-time into it right like if it's a side hustle thing great let's continue on the side but i think um, what we're talking about here is like making the leap, right? Like making the leap to go full-time into something. So when, when you're making the leap to go full-time into something, you got to think practically, can I do this? Right? Like, do I have the, the, like, do I have the capital behind me? Um, do I, do I have sort of like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, right? Like, do I have like my basic necessities covered for me to do this? over an extended period of time, right? That's the first and foremost thing, right? If you can answer that, then I think the, the, the question, like there is no other question, right? It's like, the, the other question is like, do you have conviction into the thing that you're building? And is it a problem that needs to be solved for the world? And do I see an avenue where customers will pay for it, right? And if you have evidence of all those things, then I think it's a fairly easy response, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's now a question of like, am I going to take the leap or not? And the, the, there's a sort of like people sort of stand on the edge for a really long time because they have this really great idea and this really great problem and this like, you know, customers could pay for it, but they never take the leap. Right. And, and I think you should just take it right? there's this, to your point there's this two way door thing, right? Like if you have all your, if you've got all the necessities and all, like your, your foundations covered and you, 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 you can do this for the next one, two years even. Right. And you've got conviction for the idea, like just take that leap, man. Like there's no, there's no downside to this, right? Like there is absolutely zero downside. The downside is you, what, like there's a one year or two year gap on your resume when you're, looking for a job, right? Like, but to me, if I was an employee and I looked at that, like I would, that's great for me. Like that's, oh my God, like you've gone and done something. You've gone and risked, like taken a lot of risk. You've learned a ton. Like you've learned basically what people would learn in 10 years in one year, right? Like you've taken an, you know, like it's almost like you've taken an MBA in like one year. And and so I, I think there is, so much more to gain out of doing something, taking risk, because it prepares you so much better 
for your career, like further down the line, and you won't see it, right? Like, I don't think I don't think I'll see the effects of um, start like doing Munchkart until at least another two or three years, until it pops up again, right? Like, um, and, and that's the same with a lot of things. It's like building your network, right? Like you won't see the effects tomorrow, but in two or three years time or four years time, you will see the effects, like the network effects of your, your personal network. And it's the same with building a startup and taking the leap. You won't see the effects immediately. You will see it like tenfold in a few years. Well said. I think there's a lot of points to be made there. And a lot of, well, a lot of people listening to this will definitely hear and hopefully be inspired to sort of learn more about your journey, but also about their own journey as well as they start to build out their own uh, version of what their success looks like at the end of the day. What is the best way for people to connect with you? Um, and if there's anything that you're looking for or, you know, love to sort of get you to share some of your next steps, what, what, what are you looking for and how can people uh, connect with you if, if they want to? Yeah, I, um, I'm actually... Um, at the moment I, I'm, you know, riding off the munchkart wave. I'm, I've figured that I've uh, like, I get a lot of energy from, from startups. I get a lot of energy from speaking with really smart people, working with really smart people, being around really great ideas. And so, um, you know, if you're building something really interesting or you just want to bounce something off, off of me. Um, you're an early stage founder or you're going through sort of the hurdles of building a startup. Um, just reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find me, uh, Jackie Koo. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a fairly sort of open ask, but you know, if, if anyone's in the same boat, I'd, I'd love to lend a, an open ear or a helping hand wherever I can. So, yeah. Thank you, man. Really appreciate you coming on and just sort of sharing your story. I know it's not always easy to sort of uh, share the the uh, the lowlights of uh, what happened, but you know the great thing is that you have highlights as well, and those highlights will take you much much further. And I think what I can say is that failure or things that don't go your way shouldn't be uh, looked the other way. I think it should be celebrated and tolerated more, especially in Australia. Um, I think we need to bring this, more of these stories to light, and hopefully make people aware that yes it's tough but it's also super rewarding as well and the amount of lessons that you will learn is going to be bar none especially as you said a lot of these uh, uh, rewards will come uh, organically in the next couple of years as you start to learn more and more so I'll put all of your contact details and and put also a link to the postmortem that you did as well on Munchkart to for people just to understand what you've been doing and use that as a bit of a resume as well uh, so that people understand uh, what you've been doing um, over these past couple of years. But really appreciate it, Jackie. Thanks for coming on and uh, you'll speak soon. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.